You're listening to Revelation God Wins from Coram Deo Church, a gospel centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. This morning we have a lengthy reading, all of chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation Christ's letter to the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring uh, patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food, sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. 
and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The word of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my name and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are not Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my patient, my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. we got a little work to do this morning. We are going to cover two chapters of Revelation. And as you can tell from hearing it, these chapters consist of seven letters that Jesus wrote or dictated to this, these seven churches in the first century. And so one way to tackle this would be actually to preach seven, seven sermons, to take each letter one at a time and consider what does God have to say to us in this particular letter. We're not going to do that. I would encourage you, however, to do that. In each of these letters, there is uh, exhortation that we need to hear. There's rebuke that we need to hear. There's encouragement that we need to hear. And so as you read this book, I would encourage you to just read these letters and ask, what, what's commended in this church? What is rebuked in this church, and what does God say to me and to us in light of that? What we're going to do instead this morning is to sort of take the the 30,000 foot approach, the satellite view of these letters. Each of these letters is both specific, 
and general. In other words, it is both a specific word to particular churches in a particular time, but also if you look at all seven together, you see there are some common themes and there is a common structure that coheres through all seven of these letters. And so you'll notice every letter follows the same pattern. It first of all starts with a description of Jesus that uses terms from chapter 1. Jesus says, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands, who has the seven stars in my hand, who has feet of burnished bronze, etc. It's all referencing chapter 1 that we looked at last week. Uh, Then there's a statement of commendation and or rebuke, where Jesus says, I know, and he goes on to speak what he knows about these churches, either where they are succeeding or where they are failing. And then there's a command or a directive. It is usually repent. Then there's an exhortation, which should sound a lot like the exhortation Jesus gave when he taught parables, and he said, let him who has ears to hear, hear. And then there's a promise to those who persevere, to those who overcome, to those who conquer. Every one of the letters follows the same exact structural pattern. And so we're going to take a look at that general pattern and see what is God saying to us in all of these letters taken together. But before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of background information just to help you understand um, some of the more specific details of this text. Uh, If you look at a map of what is now Turkey, what was formerly called Asia Minor, uh, you can see down here in the lower left, there's the island of Patmos. If you went from there over to the mainland and you traveled in sort of an upside-down U, you would go through these seven cities exactly as they are in the book of Revelation. And so John wrote this in, in the order that a courier would take this letter to these seven churches. Um, let me talk specifically about just one of them, because one of the things that's fascinating about this chapter is how specifically Jesus knows and speaks to each church. And one of my concerns about this is that you can sort of flip through like, okay, yeah, I don't know where Pergamum is, I don't know where in the world that is, whatever, and you just kind of read on. If you actually stop and take the time to do a little bit of historical work and understand where are these cities, what was going on in these cities, and why is Jesus writing what he's writing, there are some fascinating things that come to the surface. Uh, You'll notice over on the the lower right over here is Laodicea, which lies between the cities of Heropolis and Colossae. Laodicea is a very important city in the first century, but it was known for its terrible water. One writer said the water in Laodicea was nauseous and undrinkable. And so it had no water supply. The way that it got drinkable water was to pipe it through a six-mile aqueduct. In fact, if you go to the ruins of Laodicea now, you can see this Roman aqueduct that still is there, that's a pipe that carried water from a town six miles away and piped it into Laodicea so the people there could have water to drink. As you might imagine, once that water had traveled six miles, it was neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. Uh, Likewise, Laodicea was a very affluent city. It was a center of banking and commerce. It was also the site of one of the most important medical schools in the Roman Empire. And so it had a, a number of very wealthy citizens. In the year AD 60, an earthquake leveled the entire city of Laodicea. And the emperor offered public funds, public aid, to rebuild the infrastructure of that city. The citizens of the city said no to the emperor's offer, and instead raised out of their own private means the funds to rebuild the entire city. Streets, public facilities, buildings, houses, the whole nine. Just out of their own wealth. So you see now, when Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, you're neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. When Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, my problem with you is that you think you're rich and need nothing, and you don't really know how poor you are. You see how precisely he's speaking into the exact situation that was true in that place, at that time in history. Every one of these seven letters is that specific. And so I want to urge you, if you have a good study Bible, if you have a good commentary, if you even just get online and do a 
a sensible web search, you'll find some incredible background information that will help you see how specifically God is speaking into each one of these situations. What we see from Revelation 2 and 3 is this. Churches reflect their cities. Churches reflect the cultures of the cities they exist within. Uh, The reason for this is simple. Here's how a church comes to be. The gospel is preached into a particular culture, a particular place, and out of that culture is birthed a church. But you'll notice this is a cyclical pattern because it doesn't stop there. What then needs to happen is that church needs to continue to rediscover and reapply the gospel and be sent by the gospel back into the culture it exists within to continue that process. This is part of the reason we're committed to church planting is because we want to continually be rediscovering, reawakening ourselves to the truth of the gospel in a way that pushes us out into the culture and births new missional communities, new churches, new bodies of people who exist for the glory of God within a particular culture or city. This is how churches are planted. If you were around when we did our church planting series last year, you remember we said the seed of the gospel is planted in the soil of a particular city, and the fruit of that is a church. So, churches resemble and reflect the cities they exist within. That's a good thing. When churches faithfully represent Jesus in a city, they become a living picture of what the gospel does and how the gospel impacts that culture and how the gospel changes things. It's also a bad thing. Because whatever idolatry, whatever sin, whatever issues are present in a city are generally going to be reflected in a church as well. Whatever problems you see in the city, you're generally going to find in the church. I mean, this is true of Coram Deo, isn't it? Think about the city that we live within. What is true of the city of Omaha and how does that play out in the life of our church? I'll give you... Just a couple examples. Uh, Omaha is a Midwestern, hardworking city. Right? People here have sort of a Midwestern work ethic. They're generally hardworking, diligent, faithful, responsible people. Do you know how that plays out in our church? A lot of you guys have a really hard time with grace. You don't really understand what it means to be given a gift that you did nothing to earn or deserve. In fact, you have such a hard time with that 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 you continually are on this treadmill where if I do X, I expect God to give me Y, and if I put in my time, I want this outcome in my life, and I'm works-driven and obedience-driven. I can't just rest in grace. The city is reflected in the church. Here's another example. Omaha is a very religious city. A census data says that 60% of people in our city claim to be regular church attenders. It's a high number. What does that mean for Coram Deo? It means we got no problem getting people to show up on Sunday. Getting people to attend church is not a problem in our city. If we are here, people will come. But... When we start calling you to reorient your life around the mission of God, when we start calling you to die to yourself and begin to live for the mission of God, to begin to live in uncomfortable, transparent, honest community, to begin to give of yourself and your time and your resources to serve others, it's a whole different story. We're good at attending church. We're not so good at being the church. What's true of our city is reflected in the church. Churches resemble their cities. And so because the church is always immersed and existing within a particular city culture, churches are always in danger, are always being pulled in two opposite directions. There are two dangers that always confront us as we try to live faithfully within a city culture. We've talked about them before. They probably won't be new to you. They're the dangers of separatism and syncretism. 
Separatism means we isolate ourselves from the culture, we pull away from the unbelieving, non-Christian components of the culture, and we sort of build our own little bubble and isolate. Syncretism is the opposite problem where we become so immersed in and aligned with the culture that our values and our beliefs begin to become defined by the culture and we lose our distinctive Christian identity. Churches are always being pulled in one of these two directions. It's always a fight for us to stay faithful to Jesus and avoid falling off the horse into separatism or syncretism. And as you look at Revelation 2 and 3 from the satellite view, you see this is exactly the two errors that Jesus is rebuking the churches in Asia for. This is exactly what Jesus has to bring to bear on these churches and on us. Is the danger of separatism and syncretism, and what it means to remain faithful to Jesus instead of falling into either of those two errors. And so as our outline or as our structure for this morning, we're going to look at where do we see separate, what does Jesus have to say about separatism in Revelation 2 and 3? And what does Jesus have to say about syncretism in Revelation 2 and 3? How does he call us out of these two things and back to faithfulness to him? So let's start with separatism. There are two churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that are rebuked for the error of separatism. The church in Ephesus and Sardis. Let's look first at Ephesus. Revelation 2 verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. The church in Ephesus is commended for their doctrinal integrity. Jesus says there were people there who were false prophets, who were teaching untruths, you saw it, you discerned it, you refused to listen to them, good job. Here's what I have against you. You have left your first love. Your concern for theological accuracy and purity has caused your love for God and for people and for the mission of Christ to grow cold. Easy for that to happen, isn't it? Some of you guys are theology wonks, right? You like doctrine, truth. You like to study, read, teach. You like books that are big and old and thick, right? This is sort of how you're wired. And that's good. Jesus says, man, I I commend you for caring about true theology. Here's the danger easy for your love for God and for others to grow cold. It's easy for theology to become a way of separating, of distinguishing yourself, of standing apart from the city, the culture, the needy people around you. Listen, Cornbale is known, thankfully, as a church that has strong theology. Okay, We're known as biblical Orthodox, historic, reformed. I mean, we we have sort of that reputation. I I meet people all the time that sort of come to Coram Deo and and that's sort of their card that they want to play is to say, man, hey, you know what? We're here uh, because we're reformed. And I want to say, yippee! Good for you! Who cares? I don't care! What is your theology doing? How is it working its way out in your life and in your love for other people and in service of God and His mission? If it's not, put the books away. It's not what we're here for. You know why Jesus gave you that good theology? So you could serve and love and bless others and help people understand the gospel and meet Jesus. 
That's why. Put it to use for that. Don't use it to stand around and have conversations with other people that really like theology. Don't use it to comment on blogs about theological minutia. That's not why you have a mind and a heart for doctrine. Jesus tells the church in Ephesus to repent. Some of you need to repent of your good theology. Because it's hindering the mission of God. It's hindering you from loving people well. Separatism often hides behind the mask of sound doctrine. Jesus rebukes the church in Ephesus because of their separatism. Likewise, he rebukes the church in Sardis for the same thing in different clothing. Look at Revelation 3, verses 1 and 2. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus says, hey, you have a reputation for being alive, for being on mission, for being a church where there's a vibrant, strong spirituality. Here's the problem. In reality, you're dead. Your reputation does not match reality. See, the church in Sardis was surrounded by non-Christians who weren't exactly favorable toward the Christian message. In fact, they were hostile toward it. And so what Christians in Sardis had done is they'd begun to pull back from the mission a little bit. They began to sort of say, you know what, as long as I worship Jesus in my own heart, I can kind of, I don't really need to be that vocal about it in the city. They had turned what is a public profession, right? The, The statement, Jesus is Lord, is public truth. It affects everything. They had turned that into a private confession. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Hear that a lot in our culture, don't you? Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. Not the Lord of heaven and earth, just my personal Lord and Savior. Jesus says to this church, wake up. Wake up. Some of you guys work in segments of the city where it's not welcome to be a Christian, right? People aren't going to embrace you because you're a Christian. They're not like, oh man, it's so great that you go to church, that you love Jesus, that you're trying to follow Jesus. And so what you've decided is you'll kind of keep a low profile. Kind of just, you know, keep it on the down low. Jesus says you you need to repent of your cowardice. You need to repent of your fear of man. Now, Now listen, I... You need to be wise. I'm not saying there's not a place for wisdom, tact, prayerfulness. Yes, all of that. But it's much more common that that out of a fear of man, out of a fear of how we'll be perceived, we sort of keep it internal. Jesus says, don't hide from your profession of faith. Wake up. Uh, Notice the promise he gives in verses 5 and 6. The one who conquers, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Okay? If you know your Bible, that should sort of trigger some things in you. Because Jesus in the gospel says, anyone who confesses me before men, I will what? Confess him before my father in heaven. Anyone who denies me before men, I will deny before my father in heaven. John's just saying, this is what Jesus said. If you confess him, if you're willing to profess faith, even when it's unpopular... Good news for you. Jesus will profess you before his Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, don't don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of your Christian faith and testimony. Be tactful, be wise, be loving. But but don't, don't separate out of fear. Don't pull back out of shame. Jesus rebukes these two churches for their separatism. But, but we said the other side of the horse then is syncretism. It's, it's easily possible then for us to fall off into 
accommodation to the culture, conformity to the culture in such a way that we lose our distinctiveness, that there's nothing different about how we live and about how we relate and about how we pray. The churches that Jesus rebukes for this are in Pergamum, Thyatira, and Laodicea. Well, let's look at some of what he says. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 14. This is to the church in Pergamum. But I have a few things against you. Okay, when Jesus says he has a few things against you, not good news. Right, time to listen up. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. Likewise, verse 20 to the church in Thyatira, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I told you last week, John borrows all of his imagery from the Old Testament. And so here, rather than naming who the people are, he names them by naming Old Testament people that they're like. He says, hey, you got, you got this person that's like Balaam, who you read about in Numbers in the Old Testament. And you got this woman that's like Jezebel, who we read about in 1 Kings, both of whom entice the people of God into idolatry and perversion. John mentions two particular issues that are taking place in this sort of pulling of the people of God away from fidelity to him. He mentions eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. What you need to know about syncretism is it always begins to make itself seen in doctrine and in ethics. Those are the first two places where you're going to see an accommodation to the culture, a lack of Christian distinctiveness is in what we believe and how we live. If you want to measure your faithfulness to Jesus, look at your worship and look at your sexuality. Those are good barometers of where you're at with Christ. Well, let's talk about sexuality first. What, what's What's contained under this language of sexual immorality? When the Bible speaks about sexual immorality, it generally includes two categories. There's a third for us just because of the cultural moment we live in. Uh, Adultery, which is marital unfaithfulness. Fornication, a different F word than some of you have heard, I know. Fornication is simply the biblical term for sexual intimacy outside the covenant of marriage. And then in our culture, pornography. The, the Greek word here is actually the word porneia. These, these are what's contained when the Bible talks about sexual immorality. It's talking about all of those things. It's saying, look, you, we can't be tolerating that, putting up with that. That shouldn't be present in your life. If it is, then it's a sign that there's syncretism. There's a sliding toward accommodating to the culture and the stories and the values of the culture around you. We actually had to change our membership covenant at Corumdale Church this year because of this issue. Our old membership covenant, when you become a member of our church, there's certain things we just say, hey, here's what we're committed to as a family, as God's people. And so our old membership covenant used to just say, you know, I commit to living a life of obedience to Jesus. And we figured, man, if you commit to obeying Jesus, you're in for all that that entails. Unfortunately, we didn't give appropriate weight to the cunningness of the human heart in justifying sin. And so we had a lot of situations in the past year where that language needed to be more explicit. And so we actually changed and revised our membership covenant so that it explicitly states, okay, here's what we mean when we say obedience to Jesus. So now our covenant says this, I will practice complete chastity before marriage and complete fidelity in heterosexual marriage by abstaining from practices such as cohabitation, pornography, and fornication. Should I sin in such a manner, I agree to confess my sins to Christian brothers or sisters and seek help to put my sin to death. So you'll see in that last statement, we're acknowledging, man, we live in a broken city and we are broken people and there's a lot of us who have been broken in this area. Here's what we expect. Repentance and a desire to put sin to death. That's what you got to have. 
if there's unrepentance, if there's a lack of conviction at all about this sin, and if there's not a desire to put things to death, it's a sign that you need to grow in what it means to follow Jesus and obey him. Jesus rebukes these churches in Revelation for putting up with, for tolerating sexual immorality. So so you shouldn't be okay with this either in your life or in anyone else's life that is trying to walk with Jesus. Sexual immorality is not something to be tolerated. It's not something to be you know, avoided. It's not something to be, let's not talk about this because it doesn't really apply to my profession of faith in Jesus. It's something to be repented of. It's something we've got to own and be willing to say, man, in the book of Revelation, you're going to see time and time again, sexual immorality is a mark of unfaithfulness to Jesus. If it's being tolerated, if it's being put up with, if it's not being confessed and repented of, if there's not a longing for and a, and a, a living toward purity and holiness, it's a problem. Now let's talk then about food sacrifice to idols. What, what does that mean? What is, why does Jesus rebuke that as an expression of syncretism? Here's the context in Pergamum and in Thyatira. As part of your job, you'd have to be part of a union. These are good blue-collar union tradesmen kind of towns. All of the unions had patron deities. Okay? The unions were all organized under the Roman pantheon, and so they all were, were connected to some pagan deity. So when you had your union meeting, it would involve the worship of pagan gods, which often included feasting, drunkenness, and sexual morality. So let's say you're a Christian, you live in Thyatira, you're a part of the union, it's time for the union meeting, you go to the union hall, guess what? Idolatrous worship, sexual morality, what are you supposed to do? If you stand apart from that, if you refrain from that, if you don't participate, then then you're not a good union member. There's going to be social consequences for that. People are going to think you're a little odd. There's going to be economic consequences for that. You might not get jobs. It might directly affect your ability to provide for your family. And so what a lot of the Christians here were doing was to say, well, you know what, I, man, I worship Jesus, but I mean, you know, I'll just, I'll go to the union and I'll go along with it. And it's not that big a deal because after all, I know that Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. In our culture, in our day and age, we don't do very well with the language of idolatry because we're so sort of enlightenment-minded. And we think of idolatry as, you know, bowing down to idols of wood and stone and things like that. Uh, But make no mistake, there are false gods in our culture just like there were false gods in Thyatira and Pergamum. What, What are the gods that people in our culture bow down to? Things like success, power, prosperity, approval, reputation, wanting people to think well of me. You question one of those gods, there are social consequences, right? There are economic consequences. If at work you don't play along, you don't play the game the way the rest of the people there do, there are consequences to that. Here's something I've seen happen over and over again at Corondale. One of the things that is a blessing at Quorum Deo is that we, you know, reach a really young, post-college sort of segment of the population. There are a lot of women in our church that are strong, competent, professional young women, highly successful in their education, in their jobs. And here's what I've seen happen over and over again. Those women fall in love, get married, begin to have children, and decide, you know what, I... I need, to, I need to give my primary attention and effort to raising my children. And so my, my career, my sort of um, vocation needs to take a back seat for a while, this, this season of my life. When that happens, there's always consequences. In, the fa- in people's families think that's odd. People's friends think that's odd. There, there's... There's scorn and intimidation that comes from employers when those kinds of decisions are on the table. You're you're expected to worship the gods of our culture. Make no mistake about that. Jesus says, don't play along with the worship of those false gods. 
Be discerning. Be aware of what the gods in our culture are and don't, don't give in to the worship of those gods. The gospel had better affect how you think about everything. Does the gospel get to critique what kind of house you live in? Does the gospel get to critique what kind of car you drive? Does the gospel get to speak into the career decisions you make and your vocational decisions? It better. Otherwise, you just have a life where you've sort of segregated religion and Jesus over here and then everything else over here. Those two worlds need to talk to each other. Jesus is Lord of everything. And and what Jesus is saying here is, hey, don't be worshiping false gods. Don't be bowing your knee to the idols of your culture. Uh, The final church that's rebuked for syncretism is Laodicea. Look at Revelation 3, verse 17. Here's what Jesus says. For you say... I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, syncretism doesn't just look like sexual immorality or cultural idolatry. Syncretism also gets expressed in a comfortable affluence that dulls our spiritual sensitivity. Where things are going good on the outside, and so we assume, you know what, I've kind of got it together. I don't have a lot of needs. I don't see myself as a, as a needy, broken beggar falling down before an almighty God. I see myself as a pretty competent, able person that kind of has this together. Why would I need Jesus? Syncretism begins to look like that kind of comfortable, affluent life that dulls your spiritual sensitivity. That's America, isn't it? Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, hey, repent. You need to see. You need need me to give you medicine for your eyes so you can see how poor and miserable and naked you really are so you can have a true estimation of your humble spiritual condition before me. Don't be lulled to sleep by affluence and by the external trappings of success and prosperity. Don't let that dull your spiritual attentiveness. What we see in Revelation 2 and 3 is that churches reflect their cities. In every city and in every culture, the church is always being pulled toward either separatism, isolate from the culture, or syncretism, blend in with the culture. So how do we fight against that? If those are the errors, if those are the things that are getting rebuked in these passages, how do we fight against that? How do we strengthen ourselves against those tendencies? Uh, The answer is repeated over and over and over again in Revelation 2 and 3. The answer is, be faithful. Persevere. Hang in there. Overcome. Jesus says over and over, the, the, the encouragement that's spoken, the blessing that's given in these chapters is all, hey, those of you that are faithful, hang in there. Those of you who are persevering well in spite of persecution and idolatry, hang in there. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who's faithful till the end is going to receive my blessing. Listen, here's what I want you to see. You get credit for hanging in there. Just persevering is God's grace in your life. Living in the tension, feeling pulled in those directions, but living in the tension of that, that's obedience. That's grace. If you feel the slide towards separatism, if you feel the pull towards syncretism, and and if we live in that tension and, and keep our eyes open to that and try to remain faithful to Jesus, that's obedience. That's what God calls us to. That comes through keeping Jesus front and center. Look, Jesus did not separate from culture. He did not isolate himself. But neither did he blend into the culture and make compromises with it. 
Rather, he was a faithful witness within his culture. He faithfully lived an obedient life within his culture. Right? He was critiqued by religious people. He was critiqued by irreligious people. He loved religious people. He loved irreligious people. He lived a faithful life within his culture. And listen, Jesus is our example. He shows us how to do that. He is also our Savior. He forgives our lack of doing that. He frees us to once again be obedient and faithful in that work. He doesn't just show us how. He forgives our sin and our failure and our inability in these areas. And He empowers us by His Spirit to live as His faithful people. And so what do we need to do? Well, it's, it's really, it always comes down to the same thing. Repentance and faith. Right? Here's what we need to do as a people, as a church. We need to repent of separatism and syncretism. We need to be aware of those things, repent of them, turn from them, call them what they are, which is sin. We need to rejoice that Jesus has succeeded where we have failed. And we need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us faithful, to keep us living in the tension, to keep us prayerful in the work of being faithful in our city. That's what we do. We look to Jesus. We confess our sin to Jesus. Rejoice in who Jesus is and what he's done. We rely on the spirit that Jesus has promised. Keep Jesus at the center. Here's my closing pastoral exhortation to you. I have a concern about this message. And my concern has been that what's going to happen is you're going to walk out of here and now you have these categories of separatism and syncretism. And they both start with S and it's good and Baptist-y. And so you're going to be like, oh yeah, those are the two errors we should avoid. And some of you guys will go you know, blog about this or you know, tell your mom, you know, hey, here's two categories we should avoid. That's all great and good. That's just information. I don't want you to be content with information. I'm not preaching this message so you can just have these categories in your head. What I want you to hear is is these things are for us, not just for you. These are letters to churches, not just to individuals. Here's what I want you to see. You have a responsibility for the people around you. You have a responsibility for the church that you're a part of. You are responsible with each other to be a means of holding up the mirror, helping each other avoid falling into these traps, praying that we would be faithful. to You have a responsibility for the people that are around you. You are responsible to make sure that Coram Deo Church is a faithful church in the city of Omaha. You. And I want you to feel the responsibility that you have for the people that are around you, for the people in your missional community, for the people that you walk through life with. You are responsible for this. So you need to be having good conversations with each other. You need to be in the kind of honest community where where you can talk about things in a real direct way. Where you can say things like, hey, you know what? I know you love theology and you talk a lot about doctrine, but it doesn't seem to me like you have very many close friendships with non-Christians. Why is that? How can I pray for you? How can I help you grow in that area? How can I introduce you to some of my friends who are far from Jesus? Hey, I know you you just started dating that guy, and how's that going? Are you guys being faithful and obedient to Jesus? Do you have good sexual boundaries for your relationship? Hey, you know, you've been working a lot of hours lately, and I can tell that your wife feels a little bit disconnected. A little bit secondary. Is that true? Have you guys had a conversation about that? How can I be praying and helping in that? I I want you to feel the responsibility that Jesus gives that, that you are a part of the church and you are responsible for the health and well being of your church. That responsibility does not fall to a few. It falls to all of us. And I want you to feel freed and released and empowered to be faithful to those kinds of conversations, to those kinds of interactions, to that kind of stewardship for the people around you so that we 
can finish the race well. So that Jesus would say to Coram Deo, hey, good work, good job. You've been faithful. You haven't left your first love. You haven't accommodated to the culture. You haven't fallen into all these traps of idolatry and wickedness. Let's pray that that would be the case for us. Jesus, we long to be a church that's faithful. And we see from Revelation 2 and 3 just how hard that is. God, we look at the churches around us in the city. I look at the churches near this zip code, and I just, so many of them have fallen either into separatism or syncretism. And they lack a faithful demonstration of the gospel. God, we don't want to be that. We want to be a church that is faithful to Jesus. We want to be a church that, that reflects and represents you well in our city. And, and we know that we're always going to feel the pull in one of these two directions. As a church, as smaller missional communities, we're always going to tend towards separatism and syncretism. And so God, I want to pray that you would convict each individual here of, of the sin that they need to own. And I want to pray that you would empower good conversations among friends and among families and among missional communities of where we fall short. Where do we need to hear your rebuke? Where do we need to be encouraged to be more faithful to you, Jesus? By your grace, would you make us a church that represents and serves you well in our city? We pray for your name and for your glory. Amen.